This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com slash models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for advisors, built with conviction. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Bruce Levine, CEO of NightShares, to discuss the night effect in the markets. This centers around the idea of investing in versus during the day. In order to achieve better risk-adjusted returns, Bruce shares some of his research around the night effect, explains why the night effect exists, and how he and his team are harnessing this to the launch of a handful of new ETFs. This is another example of a small ETF issuer with a new and different investing strategy. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Bruce Levine of NightShares. Hi, Bruce. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Judson, how are you? We're going to spend most of the time talking about the strategy that you deploy at NightShares. And it's, it's based on an anomaly that I didn't even really know existed in the market. So you think that you kind of understand most of the strategies that are out there. Of course, there's hundreds, if not thousands, maybe tens of thousands of different investment strategies. But I mean, it's, what you're doing is, I think, very unique. It's something I've never heard of. And I think our audience is, is going to be interested in learning about this. So, so thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. I hadn't heard about it either until a couple of years ago. Well, and you know, you, you have tons of experience in the ETF space. So you were, you have, you know, in your career, you were at iShares, you were at Wisdom Tree for a number of years. Um, and so I know from your purview, you've seen a lot of different investment strategies. Um, so this is going to be, I think, fun to talk about, but where I wanted to start with you is at a higher level with the ETF landscape sort of in general. And I just wanted to hear sort of your thoughts on what you think the future of ETFs are. Obviously, they've become more popular. Investors are, um, you know, adopting them more. I was looking, I think in 2022, there was, it, there was a decline in the number of ETFs uh, new issues that came out, but it was a slight decline. It wasn't anything crazy. There's still like 470 you know, new ETFs that came out. So there's still more ETF launching, but just kind of to get your sense as, as to where you see the ETF space going and also maybe comment on, we know that ETFs are largely dominated by like a few of the major players, but how you think small issuers, and you're one of them now, sort of fit into that. Yeah. So, I mean, there continues to be this tremendous shift, you know, towards ETFs by investors. And you've now seen the mutual fund industry probably 15 years too late, almost throwing in the towel and saying, you know, I got to take my existing funds and convert them in some cases or create, you know, near clone versions of them in ETF form. So, you know, that, and that's going to continue. 
there's a lot of product out there, no doubt about that. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting strategies out there uh, like ours, but, but many others you're, you're seeing, you know, things that can only have been done in hedge funds 10, 15 years ago are now being done in an ETF format. And so I expect that I'll continue. Uh, I don't see any other structure, you know, better suited than the ETF to continue innovation. Um, your question about the, the big guys, the little guys, you know, I think there's a lot of innovation coming from the little guys. You see that, um, continuously. And I, I don't see, see that changing. Um, it's hard. It's hard as a little guy because you, you're trying to birth a new idea and a new concept against some bigger spenders. But, um, you know, I don't see there's any reason when, when there's a strong idea, you can't have success. We had an ETS uh, for about five years that we, we ran. Um, and, you know, we like to tell this story. We launched our ETS, which was a small cap value strategy, the same week that Kathy Wood launched ARC. And so, and we're, we're more fundamental investors. So, you know, we were like, oh yeah, like, you know, our ETF's going to do so well. And who is this, 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 this disruptive ETF over here? What type of strategy? And I mean, we kind of know what happened, although ARC's fallen on us, but, you know, still, I mean, Kathy had a great, you know, basically built a great firm over there. So what do you think in your experience? I mean, you've worked at large ETF issuers and you're now at a very small one. Um. I mean, what are some of the, the key differences? Is it, is it you have to wear 12 million different hats and you don't have a chief compliance officer? What would you say? I think it's just, you know, of course, all that, but it's also just evolution of the industry, you know, against that, right? Which is in my time at iShares in the early days, it was, it was much more of a land grab, right? We knew the ETF peel was fantastic and we were just trying to put it uh, in places where it didn't exist, right? So, you know, we had, we had the first of almost other than the spider and the sector spiders and the QQQ, we had the first of almost every category. Um, Wisdom Tree was, you know, the first ETF provider that basically said, we're going to do something other than cap-weighted indexes. And, and so that was a different education process. Um, I'd say now, you know, there's a lot more product. There's, there's like 15 sponsors for a lot of years. And now there's over a hundred. So I think it's the strength of the idea that is required today, you know, to, to stand out. And that's why I felt good about launching Nightshares. You know, we thought it was a really strong idea and one that, um, you know, had sort of the academic and, uh, quantitative underpinnings that the market would like, um, and just hadn't made it to the market yet. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a different game than it used to be. There's, there's more players, there's more gatekeepers, uh, on the distribution side, but, uh, at the end of the day, the customers you know, continue to embrace the structure and that's the good news. So that the pie is growing. So, so you mentioned the strong idea. Can you just explain sort of what led you, the story that led you to find this? Yeah. So I was working with a sister company of ours uh, and they were running a hedge fund and they were showing me some of the signals that they use in the hedge fund. And the, they had two that were the most prominent. And one is this thing we call the night effect. And they were showing me that most of the returns were coming at night over time with a lot less volatility. I couldn't quite believe the numbers. And I kept asking them to show me more data, more numbers, more timeframes, uh, more segments of the market. Um, and so we tested this on, you know, large caps, small caps, U.S., non-U.S., individual stocks, concentrated sectors. And we still get getting these very consistent and persistent results. So they got me extremely excited. Um, 
And then I looked around and saw for about the last 20 years have been academic papers written on this topic. And the data on those goes back to the late 90s. And they are saying something's going on at night where there's excess returns. Uh, and, you know, there's different explanations for it. But, um, you know, so I got very excited um, and and got some backers and formed this company. And, and we launched funds in June of last year. If you looked at like the total return, the total volatility of the S&P 500, like how much of that is during the day and how much of that is at night? Yeah. So over 20 years, uh, ending at the end of 22, uh, the S&P did about nine and a half percent annualized and about seven and a half of that came at night and just a tad over two came during the day. And the volatility of night was about 55 to 60% of the volatility of buy and hold. So, so on the, in large cap things, you're getting something that was sort of 75% of a return with 55, 60% of the volatility and thus had a higher sharp ratio than the index itself. Um, and night has a much higher sharp ratio than day does. So day, if you think about, you know, the converse of night, right? You have a session that rewards you quite poorly, lots of volatility. 2% return historically. And, and by the way, in small caps, yeah, small caps was really the shocker. Um, also about a nine and a half percent annualized return, uh, 12 and a half percent at night, negative 275 or something like that during the day. So, so if every more, and, and this is just using opening and closing prices of ETFs. So the IWM, the big I share. So if, if for 20 years in a row, you bought it at the open and sold it at the close, you'd be down. 275 before T costs and, and anything else fees are. You mentioned some of the academic research that supports this. You know, a lot of our listeners are factor investors, so they'll probably want to look at that. Um, could you just talk about maybe some of the papers that are out there that have supported the night effect? Yeah, there's a number of different professors have written on it. And we've talked to a few of them. Um, they range from lots of universities. Um, we talked to a guy in uh, Cal Berkeley that said uh, CAPM works uh, at night, but it doesn't work during the day. We talked to uh, some guys at the University of Chicago, Illinois, who found excess return um, night. Uh, they were trading it themselves. They, um, one of the papers is written by the Federal Reserve Bank. They've updated it a couple times um, over the years. And um, they talk about an excess return that comes when Europe opens in the futures market. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot out there. Uh, and there's, there's papers written by foreign professors looking at international markets, and they found the same effect, uh, in most developed markets around the world. Did they, did they find anything as to why it works? You know, when, when we look at factors, we typically try to say they work for one or two reasons, you know, either they're taking more risk or there's some sort of behavioral anomaly going on that allows them to work. Did, were they able to look at that and figure out why this works? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say, um, I'd say there's three main areas of discussion around why it works. One is related to information flow that comes when the markets are closed. So, uh, earnings announcements and the M and A announcements. And so if you're not invested prior to the announcement, you know, you may pay up to catch the exposure. So that's one, uh, in terms of the investor behavior, I think that's probably for me personally, more intuitive, uh, on a couple levels. One is that you have institutions that like to de-risk at the end of the day and they de-risk for lots of different reasons, but, uh, 
I've talked to people that run trading desks, for example, and they're like, I screen up my traders every night to go to them flat because their business is not taking overnight risk. It's just doing things during the day. Uh, that's one part of it. You know, there's other things when you hold overnight that they want to avoid like capital charges and interest charges and marks to market and things like that. The other investor behavior component that's really interesting now is just, you know, who's trading during the day, who's trading at night. So during the day or during, let's say during the night, not too many people, right? There's futures market, there's, uh, news coming out of Asia and Europe that institutional traders might trade on, but there's not that much going on. It's a pretty quiet session and there's no retail investors you know, unbalanced, but during the day you have big retail, you have algorithmic trading going on, you have day trading community, you have all these things that are moving the markets around and seem to be detracting from performance. So, you know, that, that from a behavioral standpoint, that feels right to me. Um, other, other behavioral things are, you know, uh, you know, retail traders buying in the morning and institutions, you know, being more um, disciplined about not buying into the open, things like that. Yeah, that retail thing is interesting to me. We had, when we had Jason Zhu on the podcast, we were talking about like factor investing in China. And, you know, one of the reasons he said factor investing works a lot better in China is because there's way more retail traders. So it, I think it would make sense probably, you know, that during the day, there's way more retail traders. There's probably more dumb stuff going on, you know, than, than there is at night. Yeah. Very possible. Very possible. I wanted to ask you, whenever we look at a factor, we always like to go back to the, the complete guide to factor investing by uh, Andy Birkin and Larry Swedro. And they have sort of a list of criteria that they use to evaluate any factor. So I want to work through each one of those individually with you and ask you about them. So the first one is persistence. Does the factor historically deliver reasonably reliable returns? So how would you look at this factor through that lens? Yeah. So we saw the persistence, uh, again, across many uh, sub asset classes in the equity world. We saw it on the local markets of every country, you know, just about, uh, again, so this is, you know, if, if you're a German investor and you buy the DAX close and sell the DAX open, we saw it. So it, it doesn't necessarily transcend, um, countries or, or that, that requires a little more research, but we see it locally. Um, you know, we saw it, uh, uh it, it doesn't, it does not work all the time. So, you know, persistence doesn't mean works all the time, but you know, we, we, we looked at it over many, many years and found there was something there. Um, you know, it might work 53% at the time or something, but you know, if you're like the blackjack dealer, you know, and you have 53% out to make a lot of money. So it's kind of, kind of like that. Yeah. Well, that's kind of with all factors, you know, obviously those are the value investors learned that value doesn't work all the time for a, we learned a pretty harsh lesson in that over the past decade. Um, how about the idea of pervasiveness? Have you looked at it in other asset classes? A little bit. Uh, so it's interesting. We've looked at it like at high yield bonds and, you know, it, it seems like they have an equity like component. So it's kind of there, but as you know, high yield bonds, um, the pricing's a little trickier, the liquidity's a little trickier. So, um, you know, we, we, we haven't done too much with that with, with treasury bonds, uh, they seem to have like almost the opposite of the night effect. They have a day effect. Right. Because when you go out of, when you de-risk at night to go out of equities, you go into treasuries, you know, so then anyway, so, so we've seen a little bit there. Um, we've looked at commodities. Uh, we have seen some, some night effect in commodities as well. The next one, the robustness, I think may not apply here because, uh, it's, can you define it in different ways, but the night it's either the night or it's not the night. So, uh, I'm not sure really if you, you would want to define the night in different ways. 
Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the research, um, there are periods of the night that are due that do better than other periods of the night. So there's things around the opening in Europe in the first few hours of Europe that are better than, um, you know, the last few hours of Europe. So it's interesting. That's interesting. So they've actually gone deeper, not to just say there's a night effect, but also to look, to break it down. You know, when is it stronger and when is it weaker? Exactly. Um, intuitiveness, does it make sense? Um, you know, does it make sense that it would work? You know, it does to me once I've studied it, you know, I think initially it's sort of counterintuitive in the sense that people fear the night. Um, some people think the night's really volatile, which is not true compared to today at all. Um, so it's a little initially counterintuitive, but then when you think about what, who plays at the different times, then it gets a little more intuitive, I think. And the last one's investability, which is, which is, I think is an interesting one here. Like how easy is this to capture in the real world? Well, this is a critical one, right? So, um, all these papers identified, there's a night effect and, and the question is, can you capture it? And, and of course, you know, many of them said you could not fully, but, but partially. And, you know, when we looked at the night effect, for example, there, there are many other places we would have preferred to have a fund that had a much greater night effect than the S&P 500, let's say, but we couldn't necessarily see ourselves scaling it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, cannabis stocks had a great um, night effect, but we didn't want it just a cannabis stocks night fund. So, um, so we leaned into areas where you had large liquid futures contracts and the ability to transact very inexpensively. So that was really important to us uh, in our ability to capture it. And we're finding, you know, so far that um, that part's not been a big challenge. Uh, the big challenge has been, you know, just the night itself has moved around a lot versus the day since we launched. But, you know, that's how we got there. And, and, and we, so investability was a really important criteria for us. So is that the, the idea you want to try to buy the close as close as you possibly can with futures and then you want to sell the open? I mean, is, is that the general idea you're trying to get at? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be very systematic, doing the same trade every day um, in the eyes of the customer. So we're predictable. So we, you know, use an algorithm to trade very, very close to four o'clock, very, very close to 930 in the morning. What is the impact of transaction costs here? I mean, are, are you able to capture it pretty well or are transaction costs a significant issue? We don't think they're going to be real significant. We think, um, so there's two, there's two elements in that. One is that the commissions we pay to trade futures, which are pretty small. Um, and then of course there is bid ask spread, you know, and then we also get income on the cash that underlies it. So we're sitting in cash and treasuries in the fund and trading futures on top of them. So we're getting three and a half to 4% yield. Um, we think that in large cap space, the T cost annually might be one to one and a half percent. And then it's a bit more than that in the Russell too. Um, but you know, that could still, um, leaves, you know, some capturing of a night effect. You sort of highlighted small caps before in cannabis stocks. Are there other areas of the market or other sectors or something like that, where this effect is stronger than in, in, in certain other areas? I mean, absolutely. It, it, I mean, we've, we've carved up the market, you know, as many ways as you can, and it's fascinating to look, um, what happens and, you know, meme stocks was another area, you know, at one point that had a huge night effect and, you know, you could sort of argue with the retail flow and meme stocks that, that might've made some sense. Um, so yeah, lots of areas to look at. Uh, it's under constant study. Uh, 
And, you know, we may do some more active things over time that give you sort of baskets of different areas of the night effect. Are, are there certain areas you think might be ones you'd want to expand into the future? I mean, you know, some of these areas, like you said, with cannabis stocks, you know, it, it's there, but it's hard to capture. Are, are there some other areas as you think about your plan in the future that you think might be like ripe, fertile ground for you to expand into? Yeah. I mean, there, there are, I don't, you know, I don't have them all the top of my head. And, but I think the idea of having a basket, um, you know, maybe an ETF of ETFs that, um, you know, looks at the night at a different level so that, you know, instead of trying to execute hundred percent of the stock in a cannabis stock, hundred percent of the fund in a cannabis stocks, maybe it's 5% of the fund. And then we can get comfortable with the investability of it. So, um, yeah, that's something we're looking at. One of the unique things you guys do, which looking at your website is you sort of have two different ways you approach this. You have the one way where you're just buying at night and then you have the other way where you're owning all the time, but sort of leveraging night. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about the two, the pros and cons of those two different approaches. Yeah. So, so the NSPY is the one, you know, that seeks to duplicate the 75% of the return with 60% of the volatility. So that's just, um, invested overnight, not invested during the day. And that, that's kind of a, a risk-adjusted trade, right? You will earn less over time historically than holding the spider outright. You'll have less volatility, but it, it's a volatility-adjusted trade. So we wanted to introduce another one that, for investors that didn't want to give up on the return side. And so there we have uh, NFPL as the ticker, and it, it's 100% invested during the day, but then it leverages up the night an extra 50% um, to give you the night tilt. And that one over time had about 325 basis points outperformance against the SPY before, uh, you know, T costs and fees. So that one was interesting. And, uh, um, I think investors find that to be just more of a straight equity substitute, you know, and the volatility, it's a little bit higher than buy and hold. So buy and hold is about a 19 vol and our fund has about a 23 vol, but because you are leveraging just this kind of quiet, quieter night period, um, you know, the vol is not excessive. And just to give you a, a sense that the QQQ is about a 22 vol. Yeah. So the idea is you're getting, you're getting a, a significantly better risk adjusted return doing it that way. You know, you're, you're getting more of the return at night, but less of the volatility and you're leveraging that area of it. Yeah. Very targeted use of, of leverage. Um, so like when you look at sharp ratios, the index has like a 0.6 sharp and night's like a point six eight or something, but day is a point two or point two one, something like that. So it's really that the night has a much higher sharp than the day. And so you're just leaning into that. Are there certain market environments where this tends to be more or less present? I, I don't know. I don't know if, that's a, if volatility picks up or if maybe bear market environments where night tends to do better. Yeah, that's a great question. So we've looked at this a lot of different ways and it's hard, you know, finding out exactly when this works will be really the holy grail for us and investors. And, um, but we have seen, you know, some, some interesting data. So it, if, if the markets are really choppy or down, you know, this is typically going to do pretty well, um, because the day session is going to struggle. But in times when the day session is running hot, this can lag. And we saw that right after we launched, um, we launched June 28th. The F&P was at 3,600 by August 15th. It was at 4,300 and we lagged and most of that bounce came during the day. So, um, 
we've done a little bit of analysis on uh, kind of the two funds, you know, when would you hold the risk-adjusted NSPY and when would you hold the equity substitute NSPL? We found this cutoff point based on a, like a, a regression line through the past history that said, if you thought the market was going to be 5.9% up or less, you'd want the risk-adjusted. And if you thought it was going to be higher than that, you'd want to lean into the, the full equity trade. So that, that was a, just a, to put a historical context around it. It seems like there could be like an inter interesting rotational strategy there where you could maybe have like an over a, a fund above them that might decide which one to be in and maybe rotate among them over time or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, rotating in and out of the night effect is, is something that can be interesting. Um, you know, I think when we talk to some of the professors, they would say there are certain times when it's more pervasive than others. For example, after a very large drop in the market the next day is likely to have a stronger night effect. So as an ETF provider, you know, we want to be systematic, transparent, and predictable, right? So it's a little hard for us to bake some of this into the product, um, but, you know, investors can use it, you know, however they want. I mean, you, you had mentioned this earlier that, you know, obviously this, this anomaly exists, but it doesn't always exist. So if we were to take the last 20 years I don't know if you have like this type of data, but I'm just curious in general, like, you know, what, what percentage of time would the night effect based on your testing uh, do better than the day effect? Uh, I would be getting the exact numbers because we, we've seen so many numbers, but it, it is something slight, like, like in the 53% range. Um, it depends if you ask it that question daily, monthly, quarterly, annually, right. Um, as well. Um, I don't exactly have the numbers, but. You know, it's something, uh, it's not that dramatic. And I think people have always asked me like, well, if it, if it, if it looks too good to be true, why doesn't it get arbitraged away? And I think that's the answer, right? Which is, it's not like it's happening 65% of the time or anything. You know, it's, it's, you gotta be in it for a long period of time to capture it. One of the potential, I mean, benefits, I'm interested in what you think about this is, you know, during the day, investors that are invested in vehicles see the price changes and are more likely maybe to make changes and bad decisions. I'm, I'm thinking like retail investors or it happens to professionals too. Um, I mean, it seems to me like because your movements are at night, you might actually help investors. I mean, they're going to see the change of performance over time. So if it doesn't perform, then they're probably not going to, many investors or some investors won't stick with the strategy or the ETS, but you know, they're not seeing this. If, if the market's down 3%, they're not seeing it like in real time. So it could actually help with investor retention and, uh, you know, sticking with the ETF potentially. Yeah. I mean, from a behavioral standpoint, it's a good discipline, right? But I don't think anyone should view Nike shares as a hundred zero for your portfolio, right? This is something that you blend in. To, to add a tilt towards this factor, that this night effect. Uh, and, you know, on days when the market um, crashes intraday, you're pretty happy that you have a piece of it that's not crashing because we're out. Um, you know, and that's what we found. So you, I think the best way to think about this is it's, um, you know, it's a little, it's got some properties of an alt in the sense of uh, less correlated. I think, uh, the night is like a 0.63 correlated with buying hold. Um, it's not particularly correlated with other um, 
parts of your portfolio, your commodities, your bonds, et cetera, either. So it's not, so it's not like overlapping, uh, correlations with anything else. So, so, you know, it, it provides diversification benefit, uh, a different risk premia, some non-correlation, but those things that you sort of associate with other factors and other alts. On that behavioral thing. So people who are, are invested in the fund probably are not, you know, you, during the day, are you owning like short-term bonds or something? I mean, they're not seeing any volatility, right? They're, they're just, once it opens, they're not seeing any volatility to close, right? Yeah, it's got a strange contract construct that way. That during the day, it, it's kind of stagnant in terms of the bid ask spread, and then all the activities overnight. Yeah, it just it's kind of a it gaps up or down. Yeah, to Justice's point, I think that would be a really big benefit. You know, like I'm looking at my portfolio today. Like the, when we're talking, the market's tanking. Like you know, a lot of people are very you know they have this tendency to want to go pull the trigger and be like, I can't take this anymore. Let's sell. You know, th this is good from that perspective. You're you're at least during the day when you're awake, when you have the ability to take action. You know, you're not seeing that volatility. Yeah, again, right, blend it into the portfolio. I think that makes perfect sense, right? It, it does. It's a, it's a level of protection, and um, you know, the, again, there there are days when you the market sells off in the morning and rebounds during the day, and we miss it. Right? And there's days where the market opens up and reverses and goes lower, and you're happy, you're out. So you know, there's all kinds of things, and, and I think you just again, again, just have to blend it in. Just thinking through, I'm thinking back to when we had RETS, you know, we had a lot of small and mid cap stocks. So when we were, when money was coming in and being put to work, you know, the market makers would have to go in and buy those. And sometimes we might see movement, but we were trying to buy as liquid stuff as possible. But, you know, we knew that there was sort of like a, a scalability issue. You know, if RETS ever got to become really successful, you know, we would have had to scale in to these positions over time. But you don't really, you, you don't really have that problem, right? Cause you're buying food. I think if, I mean, at some point, you know, if we were, um, a $10 billion small cap fund trying to, you know, trade the way we trade today, we'd have a problem. Right. So I do think, um, as we scale, you know, we'll have to look at it, but in large cap space, you know, we're a pretty long way off from having problems that the S and P futures market's pretty darn liquid, but, uh, we can always just change the way we try to capture the night effect, right? We can, we can, right now we're very close to 9.30 and 4 o'clock because we can be and we're not moving the market around. Um, but we could just change our trading strategy over time uh, as needed to keep T-cost uh, bearable. Well, this is, um, it's going to be very interesting to see sort of how this strategy does, how your firm develops. And we certainly wish you the best of luck. I mean, we know, uh, you know, small ETF issuers, you know, it's, it can be a grind, but like you said, it's about, I guess, the, the strength of the idea. And this is, um, one that, you know, no one else is doing. So it certainly gives you a head start and, you know, an edge. Um, we like to, um, ask all of our guests sort of a standard closing question. And that is based on, you can go anywhere with this based on your research and experience in the markets. If you could teach the average investor, what lesson, what would that be? Um, I think it's just, you know, keep your mind open to new things. Uh, there are constantly, um, things being learned and, and previous relationships that no longer hold up as well. Um, you know, a good example would be just, you know, now that bonds are in an uptrend after 30 years of a downtrend, like the world looks completely different and you have to just really reassess 
prior relationship. So, um, you know, I've looked at market structure over time, the way that's changed, um, the way things trade. So, you know, the one thing about this, this world that is not stagnant. <laughs> and so, um, learn a lot, but then keep updating your, your knowledge. Great. Where can people go to learn more about your firm, Bruce, and, and the ETFs? Yeah. Um, nightshares.com is the website. Uh, they can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, we have some cool tools on our website. Um, one's called the night watch that allows you to sort of disaggregate the 24 hours into the day and night. One's called the night vision that allows you to customize the time frame and see how the night effect did. Uh, yeah. So there's lots of tools. And of course, if you reach out, uh, there's a way to contact us on the website. We'd love to have a chat. Great. Thanks. We'll put links to all that stuff in there. Um, we appreciate your time and, and good luck with the ETFs. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate